Welcome to episode 30 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Today, we're going to discuss a column by Rupa Supermania, which highlighted some court documents that showed that the federal government didn't actually have any scientific justification for their travel bans before they implemented them. Now, I have always assumed they didn't have any because they didn't offer any. But now, it's been spelled out in black and white. They had nothing. Nada. Zilch. All we know is that the orders came from the top, meaning the cabinet. But who gave the order? We don't know. But the only justification they put forward is this phrase, oft repeated by those in the cabinet, like the prime minister and the transportation minister, quote, we continue to follow the science, unquote. What science? Oh, the science. Sorry for asking. Please continue. In that column, Rupa also notes that the government is trying to get the court case declared moot. We're seeing quite a bit of this lately, where they say, essentially, there is no point in proceeding with the proceedings because the issue has been resolved. So let's all put this behind us, shall we? Save some court time and some money. No need to determine who was right or who was wrong, who got what they wanted and who lost out, who lost their livelihoods, their businesses, their loved ones, their fundamental rights and freedoms, because, well, we're all in this together, aren't we? Let's move on, and if we, your overlords, happen to bring back the mandates or the lockdowns, well, you'll just have to start your pesky court actions all over again. All together now, let's kick this can down the road. But before we get into that, John, I just wanted to ask you about the Justice Center Award Dinner coming up in Calgary on the 11th. I did ask you last week whether Tamara Leach would be speaking at the dinner upcoming. Do you have an answer for me? Yes, I do. It is 99% certain that Tamara Leach will be speaking at the George Jonas Freedom Award dinner in Calgary, Thursday, August the 11th. And of course, I cannot offer 100% guarantee. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen between today and August the 11th. But as things stand, it's 99% sure that she will be attending. She will be speaking. There are still tickets available for sale at www.jccf.ca. Uh, regular tickets are $200 per person. You get a very generous tax credit as part of that. And the VIP tickets, which is which are limited to a very small number of people, you will be able to meet with uh, former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford, who's uh, one of the keynote speakers, and Tamara Leach. And so that's a very small number. And the VIP tickets are $500 per person. And there's a very uh, generous tax credit for that as well. So um, visit our website and uh, buy your ticket and come to Calgary for Thursday, August the 11th and uh, others in attendance. Many of the, thank you, Kevin. I look forward to seeing you and there will be uh, Kevin Steele will be present and uh, our podcast VIP, but <laughs> at the, at, at the dinner and uh, some, some of the justice center lawyers and other staff will be there as well. I know a lot of our supporters really enjoy meeting the people that are doing the hard work every day and making it happen. I will look forward to meeting some of those people as well, because uh, I haven't been down in Calgary in a while. And uh, so I look forward to meeting some of my colleagues. That's going to be a good time. All right. 
I guess we can move on now. I think we will go to this kicking it down the road story. Uh, the peg, I had pegged it to a story by Rupa Subramanya in Common Sense. Court documents re- reveal Canadians' travel ban had no scientific basis. What say you, John? Well, this court action that uh, Rupa Subramanya writes about on her website, which is called commonsense.news, and the Justice Center's uh, court actions on behalf of Brian Peckford, the former Newfoundland Premier and last living signatory to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms back in 1982, as well as Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. So these actions have been consolidated. So the, the court action that Rupa is writing about, and, and I'm sure you'll post the link with, with the oh, yeah. podcast, it's the same one that we're involved with. And so we are finding out that the but not surprisingly, there there just isn't any science behind this whole idea that uh, people who have not received the COVID shots uh, should not be allowed on airplanes because they are somehow a special danger that the uh, injected people do not pose. There's just no science behind it, and that's becoming very evident. The reporting on this has been limited, and, and there's a reason for that in that you have the what used to be called cross-examination now it's called questioning in alberta it's called questioning and it's not about your your sexual identity but it's it's questioning in a court action (laughs) (laughs) other provinces might still call it cross-examination which i thought was a more appropriate a very clear term uh you know if you swear an affidavit and you make all these assertions about this that and the other thing then you're going to be cross-examined on it so what, how this works with the court procedures is that this does not take place in court uh, before a judge. It does take place in a boardroom or these days, you know, you've got the Zoom and uh, Zoom and Skype and everybody's COVID phobic. So it's not been done that often in person in the past two and a half years. And so you have a court reporter there and you have the person who swore the affidavit. So here we're talking about government officials that have sworn affidavits and then you have the lawyers for the applicants, claimants, plaintiffs, uh, whatever uh, term you want to use. And, and the lawyers get to ask the government official questions about his or her affidavit. And the court reporter, it gets audio recorded and the court reporter types it up. And then you get these official transcripts of the cross-examinations. And they can be filed with the court, and they typically are, and they become part of the evidence that the judge looks at. So the judge has, you know, the affidavit of, let's say, Janet Smith, uh, you know, federal government bureaucrat working in Ottawa, whatever. And Janet Smith says, A, B, C, D, she's got her affidavit. And then she gets cross-examined on it. And so the judge gets to see her affidavit and also the cross-examination. How well does she hold up or not when she's actually probed and prodded and questioned about each and every assertion that is in her, her, her affidavit and when she's asked to, you know, elaborate further on points and, you know, what about this and what about that? And why did you say this? And were you aware of such and such evidence, et cetera, et cetera. So you got all that. Now it doesn't get picked up in the media because these hearings are, they're not really, (laughs) They're quasi-private, they're quasi-public. I mean, court proceedings are supposed to be public. Once that uh, transcript of the 
cross-examination is filed with the court, it then becomes a public document unless there's a special court order because sometimes a judge, you know, in a something sensitive like a sexual abuse of a child and there's a civil action or whatever, the court will order a publication ban uh, either entirely or they'll order names to be blacked out. Um, Not to derail you, but I just want to clarify a couple of points. This questioning is done in front of the judge or not in front of the judge? Like is uh, who rules on whether questions are appropriate and things like that? That's what I was wondering, first of all. Excellent question. So it's not done in front of the judge. The judge will get the transcripts later on. Now, what often happens, though, is that the, let's say it's, uh, take this example again, you've got a government official swears an affidavit, which you know, is going to be in support of the government's case. And so the affidavit's going to testify about how, uh, you know, this is medically necessary or it's scientific or this is about protecting the public or blah, 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 whatever. The, the government's got quite a few uh, people. I, th- I don't know if it's 11 or 13 or 17 or 19, but it was, it was over 10 government officials that have sworn affidavits uh, in this, uh, in these court actions that are challenging the federal travel restrictions, the discrimination levied against those who have not taken the COVID shots. So when the government official, to answer your question, Kevin, about objections and whether the judge is there, what will happen sometimes frequently, sometimes infrequently, it depends on how aggressive the questioning lawyer is, the lawyer for the applicants, so the lawyer acting for you know Brian Peckford, Maxime Bernier, Uh, these lawyers will ask the government official questions. Now, the government official has his lawyer present as well, and the government official's lawyer might object and say, that's irrelevant. Uh, What you're asking is is, uh, irrelevant, or what you're asking is privileged. You're asking about conversations that the government official may or may not have had with, uh, with his or her lawyer. And then the... Plaintiff's lawyer can kind of, you know, certainly the question is not answered right there. It's been objected to. It's not answered. Now, instead of a judge ruling instantly whether the objection is valid or not, what happens instead is if the plaintiff's lawyer thinks that the objection is not valid, the plaintiff's lawyer could go to court and make an application to that that government official be compelled to answer that question. And so it works that way. Okay. Just another technical question, because I was sort of following the flow of what you said in terms of how these documents are released. At the time that you said it's filed with the court, then the questioning becomes public. Is that before it's ruled by, on by a judge, or does the judge have to stamp it that I've read this first before it goes public? I just, uh, because, it, you know, it seems to me like with publication bans and stuff like that, um, they would be difficult from a reporter's point of view to know what, you know, they can report on, right? If the, if the judge is going to apply things later, I guess. Yeah. So these become public before the hearing before the judge. So when you eventually have the hearing before the judge, and as we'll discuss later on, some of these are taking place in November. Um, when the hearing is before the judge at that point in time, the judge has a lot of reading materials, including, you know, the, 11, 13, 17, 19 uh, affidavits sworn by the government. All of the transcripts of all of the cross-examinations on all of those 11-plus affidavits. 
some of which will be quite lengthy, others will be fairly short. Then the, the judge will have the affidavits of Brian Peckford and Maxine Bernier uh, talking about how these travel mandates are harming them and you know why they're wrong, and medical evidence on our side. So we have expert reports. So we have our medical experts will swear a fairly short affidavit saying, you know, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and you know, here's my resume. I was at, you know, the Mayo Clinic and I was at this and that, and I've got, you know, 13 degrees from from 10 universities, and I've done this and that, whatever. They set out their qualifications. And they said, and I attach here to my expert report on, uh, you know, COVID in Canada and whether or not we need to, you know, ban unvaccinated people from getting onto an airplane, right? And then, so those medical experts on our side uh, will get cross-examined as well by government lawyers, and the judge gets that in front of him. Uh, and then sometimes. Uh, in, in some cases, everybody's it's all done by affidavits and nobody's testifying in court. That does happen. Or other times, mm-hmm. uh, people have not done affidavits and they're testifying in court. But when they're testifying in court, if there's an objection from the lawyer that that question is it's improper, it's uh, directed at something that's privileged, right? Like a conversation between lawyer and client. Then you get an immediate ruling from the judge who's right there who will say, Right. Uh, you know, yes, that question is is uh, improper, and the witness does not need to answer. Or, uh, no, that question's perfectly fine, and I'm directing the witness to answer. And so you get a ruling right there from the judge. So, so that's how it works. So a lot of these transcripts on cross examination they do get filed with the court, uh, usually months before any hearing. I would say for this federal travel case, and the, by the way, I'll just mention briefly in passing, uh, this was supposed to be heard uh, on September the 19th, 2022, and the federal government has wiggled its way out of that and maneuvered itself to a rescheduling to Monday, October 31st, 2022. So uh, once again, the government is dragging its uh, its heels. But isn't it also arguing for a mootness ruling? It Doesn't that complicate matters somewhat uh more affidavits have to be filed or that kind of thing i i it just seems to me like they're pushing this farther farther along and down the road past the uh the time when it becomes sort of relevant to canadians and yet we still need rulings on these things you know i i think that you know it's important for canadians to understand whether their rights can withstand uh, the the test of uh, legality. That's the thing, or I should say, not their rights, but the uh, laws that the government implemented during the lockdowns need some kind of court scrutiny as well. So, I mean, that's that's what we're looking for, right? Yeah. Well, there is a hearing on September the twenty first on mootness. So, what the federal yeah. government is arguing in this case and and other cases is that uh, our court actions and those of other people, right? Because I. Uh, mm-hmm. Rupa Subramanian, uh, her story is about uh, applicants in a different court case that's being heard together, right? So uh, the federal government is saying, well, the, the travel mandates are not in force right now. People that, that have not been injected with COVID shot can get onto an airplane. Therefore, it's moot. Therefore, it should be dismissed. And our argument is no, these mandates, these restrictions have merely been suspended. They can be introduced at any time with next to zero notice. I mean, 
government can say, hey, at nine o'clock, the government can send out a news release saying, oh, health conference, uh, sorry, news conference coming up at 4 p.m. today. And at 4 p.m., the, the health minister, the prime minister, Theresa Tam, whatever, the, the powers that be can declare that, you know, effective tomorrow morning, if you've not had two COVID shots, or if you've not had your two COVID shots, plus at least one booster shot, you're not allowed to travel on an airplane. And they can do that just like that. Mm. So I, I don't want to make a prediction about what's going to happen, but I think we've got a pretty strong case to say, no, we need the court to rule on the constitutional validity of these mandates and whether they are actually supported by science or not. We need that ruling because the government can reintroduce these measures at any time. And they've threatened to, that's the thing, you know I mean? And I guess that's the one thing I would like to see come out of this is, you know, some kind of timely action when governments take away our rights. You know, I mean, we are given this constitution that has this escape clause, you know, justifiably, demonstrably justified. Okay, fine. But it shouldn't take, it shouldn't take two years to get that adjudicated. If it takes only a day to implement it, it should take a a week at the most to get it adjudicated. I mean, they, they have to step up to the plate here. Yeah, it's uh, it's a disgrace. Uh, our our court system is a disgrace because it does not have the capacity to adjudicate quickly and uh, in a timely fashion. And I think when you've got human rights violations, when you've got violations of our constitutional rights and freedoms, when you've got governments that are turning you into second class citizens for you know legitimately exercising your right to bodily autonomy and not getting injected with something. That's something where we should get a ruling. You know, I, I want to be realistic. Not not a few days. They need more than a few days. But governments surprisingly get away with, you know, oh gee, well we need six months to gather the science. Well, no. If you're if you're already violating our rights and freedoms by pressuring people to get injected with a substance for which there is no long term safety testing, shouldn't you have your scientific evidence already available? And I, I certainly, if I was a judge on the court, I'd, I'd tell the government, yeah, you've got a week to uh, get your evidence together because you've, you've got these policies in place. They're supposed to be demonstrably justified. So it's it's not unfair or unrealistic to uh, tell the government with its vast resources, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of civil servants, that excludes the frontline workers. So the, you know, provincial doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, police officers, uh, the the federal you know airport workers that are handling luggage and doing security, excluding the frontline people that are actually delivering services to Canadians, you've got hundreds of thousands of of civil servants, and the uh, government has the resources to to pull together. If you're violating charter rights and freedoms, then it's not unfair or unreasonable to ask the government to, you know, in one week, maybe two weeks get its evidence together. Just to rewind a second here, you know, when you were talking about this new procedure where all this questioning is done, not in front of a judge. It's not, it's not a new, to... sorry, it's not a new, oh. it's, it's not a new procedure. It's, it's been around okay. for decades and, and it's a good thing oh. too, because if you think courts are slow now, imagine how much slower, if you could not question people on affidavits outside of the courtroom with just the lawyers present, if you could not do that, things would be much worse. Yikes, I don't want to imagine that. I guess that kind of ends my question there. I was wondering whether things are speeding up because of all this uh, question. Is is it like discovery then? Uh, is that what it's like? 
Yeah, is this hap- happening away from the court? Is that like discovery, or is it? Uh... Well, it's similar uh, in yeah. in a cross examination on affidavit. When there's a transcript of that, the entire transcript gets put before the judge, whether it's advantageous to the plaintiff or advantageous to the defendant, or whether it's a mixed bag. The entire transcript of the whole cross examination uh, is put before the judge alongside the affidavit. Now, with examinations for discovery, that is a questioning where the lawyer that's doing the questioning can determine what to put before the judge or not, right? So if the plaintiff's lawyer is questioning the defendant, uh, if the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't really like an answer because he thinks that that answer is not helpful to the plaintiff's case, the plaintiff's lawyer does not have to put it before the judge, so there's some discretion on the part of the lawyer during examinations for discovery on what gets put before the court and what what does not. Whereas the cross-examination on affidavit, it's the whole affidavit goes before the court. Okay, got it. I guess I should put Johnny on the spot here by asking you, okay, so you say this is a disgrace here in Canada. What's it going to take to fix it? Come on, got two seconds to answer. <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest part of it is to appoint more judges and right. where necessary, build more courtrooms. And that'll that'll be a different problem in every city. I mean, some maybe there's some cities or some provinces where the you know the biggest challenge is there there aren't enough courtrooms. Uh, and that one's not that hard to fix. I mean, you could always, on fairly short notice, you could rent space and then, you know, do a nice paint job on the walls and make it look like a courtroom. So that one's not that hard to fix. In terms of courtrooms, I you know, anything could be a courtroom. But uh, in many places at many times, there just aren't enough judges that are being appointed. And so it becomes like the healthcare system where you have waiting lists, right? If you don't have enough mm-hmm. doctors and nurses, uh, then, uh, you know, instead of waiting for, uh, you know, six weeks for surgery, you got to wait for six months, right? Right. So it's not in your. It's that in your opinion, is it more money that's needed? Is it more willingness to appoint more judges? I mean, I, I'm wondering if this is a provincial problem and a federal problem, obviously. Who has to step up to the plate here first? You know, is it the provinces or is it the federal government? Well, certainly the so in every province you have federally appointed judges. So the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, the Supreme Court of British Columbia, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Uh, the Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench, Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench, uh, you know, Nova Scotia Supreme Court. I'm not sure of the name. So every pro- they have slightly different names, but you have these, the judges are appointed federally. That's different from the federal court of Canada, which handles distinct federal matters. Okay. So if, if, okay. Uh, if you want to sue an airline company over something, you probably file a claim in federal court. Anyway, for, for these courts that are called the superior courts, they are federally appointed. And um, I know certainly in Alberta, I don't know where we're at now, but but for, for years, <laughs> there were too few federally appointed uh, judges uh, in Alberta. Then you have provincial court, which is the lower level court. And you have your, your criminal, your family, your civil divisions, your pr- traffic court, uh, what have you. And they're called provincial because they 
it's the provincial government that appoints the judges, right? All these courts, they deal with federal and provincial issues. They deal with federal and provincial laws, right? So and it's really, mm-hmm. really confusing. It took me a long time to wrap my head around this. So your provincial court, your Alberta provincial court, your, your BC provincial court, they will deal with and apply federal legislation and provincial legislation. It's just provincial court because it's the lowest level and the judge is appointed by the province. And then the next level up would be the BC Supreme Court, the Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Court of Queen's Bench, the Ontario uh, Superior Court of Justice, etc. And those are federally appointed judges but they deal with federal and provincial legislation, right? So they're not, they're they're federally appointed, but the stuff they deal with is they they look at all of the law, federal and provincial, whatever happens to apply to the situation. Now, of course, what I'm trying to get to is who's paying. And I know your background in the Taxpayers Federation will make you say, well, there's only one taxpayer, so he's obviously paying or she's obviously paying. However, who which level of government has to pony up? That's what I'm trying to get. Well, at. to the to the extent that there are huge backlogs in the provincial, uh, in the court, the the lower courts where the judges are appointed by the province, uh, there are backlogs there as well. I know for a fact that in Alberta, if you have to or choose to, I guess you don't have to. If you if you choose to sue somebody over a breach of contract, for example. And so you file a claim in provincial court, which is small claims court. It can take like a year or more before you, you know, it takes like five months before you have like a pretrial settlement conference uh, before a judge who's not going to hear the case, who tries to get the parties to settle. Uh, and then after that, another 12 months before you have a trial date. So it's a, it's a year and a half wait. Uh, okay. Mm. So if somebody cheats you out of $10,000 in a business contract, if you go to the, in Alberta, anyway, if you go to provincial court, you're not going to get a hearing, uh, until a year and a half from the time that you file your statement of claim. So that too is very inadequate. I can't comment on other provinces, but I know certainly in Alberta, the provincial government could stand to appoint more, uh, judges for the, uh, civil, family, criminal, traffic courts, the provincial courts. And Mm -hmm. federally, the federal government, you know, if we want these wait times to go away, they need to appoint more judges. I'm thinking maybe some kind of cost-benefit analysis has to be done here in order to prove to these governments that, you know, clearing things off the books would probably save society money in the long run, you know, by not having things tied up and become more productive if we weren't spending all this time sort of wrapped up in court cases. I think some kind of case like that has to be made somewhere because, I mean, I know it's not a great sexy issue. Yeah, let's get more money for lawyers and courts and things like that. And everybody's not really rallying around that idea, I suppose. But in order for things to, you know, happen in a timely fashion, especially when they regard they regard our rights as, you know, uh, something that they can take away so easily, I think it's, uh, I think some kind of priority has to be put on it. It's probably... It's a political – okay, this is just a guess on my part. Sure. But as you said, it's it's not the sexy issue that, uh, you know, I, I can't picture a, a political party in Canada winning an election uh, based on a, provi- on a promise to appoint more judges. 
it's the type of right. thing it, it hurts it hurts people a little bit, but most people are probably not clued into the fact that that the problem is solvable and that it's the fault of government in not spending enough money. And I know I used to work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I not one to be advocating for more government spending, but right. uh, this issue is so different because unlike healthcare, we've already got a ton of private healthcare. I mean, you're. <laughs> chiropractic and therapeutic massage and, and podiatry and psychological counseling and that long list of stuff is not covered by government, right? So it's, it's not like we don't have private healthcare in Canada. We have lots and lots and lots of private healthcare. Uh, but because healthcare need not necessarily be provided by government. Government can get in there and take it over and create a monopoly, which is what the uh, through the Canada Health Act and through provincial legislation, governments have taken over a lot of healthcare and turned it into this very inefficient uh, monopoly that uh, kills people who are waiting on on uh, who are dying on on waiting lists, so on and so forth. Now the courts, though, is different. That you can't have the uh, Kevin Steele court system or the John Carpia court system because maybe somebody won't recognize it. Like you need one court system, I think where you have a court ruling and it is enforceable, uh, might be hard to enforce if that, if you just want a judgment against somebody that has no money, judgment's not worth a lot, but at least, you know, potentially conceivably it can be enforced and both sides respect it. Both sides respect it. It can be enforced financially, or let's say you've gone, you know, uh, one of these horrible situations with the, the divorcing parents and they're fighting over the custody and access but you get a court order. The court says, "Okay, the uh, you know the kids are going to be with with uh, mom every second week and with dad every second week or whatever." Um, there's potential remedies there if either of the parents disobeys that court order. You can, uh, and it's complicated and time consuming, and whatnot. But you can at least you know uh, get a contempt of court finding against somebody or there could be some penalty or some consequence. So this is an area where the the governments just have to spend more money on uh, appointing more judges and where necessary building or renting more courtrooms. Okay. Well, I guess sort of moving on a bit, but it's kind of related in a way because, you know, we see the government slow walking these cases through the courts. At the same time, we see that support for vaccine passports and mask mandates. It's waning in Canada. There was a story on the 20th of July in the Vancouver Sun that pointed out that this support is waning. And yet at the same time, we have the University of Toronto bringing mandates back, vaccine mandates back in the fall, you know? So even though, you know, the governments are claiming, well, we're not, we don't have these mandates. Uh, We have this sort of quasi government thing called the university bringing in these passports are bringing it back now as a part of uh, their registration process. Yeah. I want to get into the university of Toronto because I have actually printed off some of their uh, website content and it's just, well, talk about it in a sec. I just want to run through some of these numbers, which are both encouraging and discouraging. This is from a uh, Vancouver sun uh, story uh, by Kevin Connor, July the 20th. Support for vaccine passports and mask mandates waning in Canada. So I view that as a very encouraging headline. And according to this article, which reviews the results of uh, an online survey conducted from July 13th to 17th, 
among 1,602 Canadian adults who are members of the Angus Reid Forum, uh, margin of error plus or minus 2% 19 times out of 20. So according to this article, in September of 2021, uh, this is at the point where we were supposed to be rid of lockdowns forever because we would have herd immunity. Remember, herd immunity was promised. And so we got our, you know, 70, 80, 90% vaccination rate. And then, oh my, gee, uh, the virus is still spreading and we don't have herd immunity. And people that got injected are still getting sick. Okay, let's move on to vaccine passports, which which had been a conspiracy theory a year and a half ago, because in in uh, March and April and May of 2020, when lockdowns were first imposed, I remember reading, remember vividly, oh yeah, this is all, they're going to punish us with lockdowns until we get so fed up with lockdowns. And then they're going to make, they're going to come out with a vaccine and then vaccinations will be mandatory and you'll have vaccine passports. And if you don't get injected, you'll suffer significant consequences, you know, like families not being able to enroll their kids in sports and right. people not being you able didn't to, talk, you, know, you didn't read about it, John. You also talked about talked it. Talked about you know, it. I mean, so, read, yeah. So yeah, it's something that we've been discussing for a while here. So, so in September of 2021, uh, when, you know, golly gee, we, uh, we didn't get herd immunity. Uh, 70% of Canadians supported vaccine passports to prove inoculation uh, to enter public space. So, Pretty scary that you've got more than two thirds of Canadians were actually in favor of of trampling on <laughs> charter rights and freedoms of their neighbors. I mean, it's just uh, human nature does not change. You see this, you know, majorities crushing minorities and majorities not speaking up for the rights of minorities is a pattern of human history, and the minority you know, it could be on the basis of, of uh, skin color or religion or political beliefs or vaccination status. But there's this horrible element to human nature of just uh, supporting the oppression of the minority. It seems to be hardwired into yeah. our system. There's a bit of the the old poop flowing downhill kind of thing too. You know, the government is kicking us around and, you know, they're they're taking away our rights. And so we sort of turn around, yeah, well, you know, now I'm going to take away that guy's rights, you know, I'm going to support that, you know? So it's kind of like a, a trend that sort of starts at the top and kind of fans out. That's part of human nature as well. I just wanted to point that out. Yes, we true. didn't start the fire. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now the good news is that uh, now, so uh, July of 2022, uh, the vaccine passports supported by only 25% of Canadians. And, uh, but in, here's the not great news. Half say they would still support mandating masks in public places. So according to this poll, 50% of Canadians would still support if government said you got to wear a mask, uh, you know, in everywhere you go, half the population would be yes, make it mandatory. So that's pretty sad. Uh, regional breakdowns are interesting. While vaccine passports are not particularly popular in any part of the country, 55% of people in Ontario and BC would accept a mandate in their province. Yikes. In Atlantic Canada, it's 62%. In Alberta, it's only 36%. In Saskatchewan, it's 38%. So Alberta, yeah, yes. yeah, Alberta and Saskatchewan is uh, outliers. Which it shouldn't be. We uh, 
We shouldn't be surprised, but uh, I guess we're just disappointed in our fellow Canadians that don't continue to follow the science. That was the, <laughs> the phrase I keyed in on this week, was uh, especially in looking at that uh, evidence that they didn't have science. You know, it's the fact that our transportation minister and our prime minister keep repeating that line, we continue to follow the science. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Continue to follow the propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, you wanted to talk about the Toronto uh, vaccine mandate. You you said you looked at some of their stuff. Well, according to the U of T website, uh, there's a big section there, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. The University of Toronto is encouraging, hmm, there's an interesting word, is encouraging all members of its community to get a booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccines as soon as they become eligible I love this eligible, you know, like, like you're not, mm-hmm. you're not eligible to go to university unless you have a high school diploma and you've taken certain courses. Maybe you need a grade 12 French or a grade 12 science. Like eligibility is this thing that you work towards. You know, if you're an eligible right. bachelor, it presupposes that you are, you know, good looking or, and or intelligent and or earning a good living and or whatever, right? You're an eligible desirable. bachelor. Yeah. You're desirable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here you've got this, you know, we're encouraging, uh, yeah, well, requiring fascist. We're encouraging mm. all members of the community to get a booster dose uh, as soon as they become eligible. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait until I become eligible to uh, to get right. injected with a substance for which there's no long-term safety mm. data. I graduated. <laughs> oh, Now, although students who are not fully vaccinated may enroll in classes with in-person components as of May 1st, how magnanimous, eh? You can actually, Mm -hmm. you can attend a class in person, even if you've not been injected. However, vaccination requirements may be reinstituted with little notice, which could result in de-enrollment. Well, now at least to their credit, they're, they're, uh, from a contractual standpoint, they're at least providing a warning what the universities did 11 months ago in September of 2021 was just wicked. It was unconscionable. They, after taking tuition payments from students, and there's no, there's nothing in the contract saying that you had to get injected. And then in September, it's like, oh, you got to get injected. Otherwise, they're going to kick you out of your course, and we're not even going to refund you your tuition. That's how despicable these taxpayer-funded institutions have become. Just absolutely zero morality. Now here they're a little bit better in that, you know, now they're saying, well, you know, if we introduce a fax requirement, you get the vaccine that could result in de-enrollment. Now, 11 months later, they're providing a little bit of a warning. Okay. Is this just one of those gaps in my knowledge, but I don't remember this term de-enrollment. Has that been around a while? Yeah, we're going to expel you. Yeah. No, I haven't yeah. I haven't been expelled. I've just been de-enrolled. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. But, however, the university will require students living in residence for the 2022-23 academic year to be vaccinated against COVID-19, including at least one booster dose. So it's not enough to you know, risk myocarditis and God knows what other uh, long-term health problems for young people who are not threatened by COVID. It's not good enough to get injected twice, at least one booster shot. So if you want to be living in residence at the University of Toronto in September of 2022, you need to be triple injected. 
and with all due respect for the small number of older people that might live in residence, but I mean, generally, you know, these are the uh, 18 to 22 year olds that are living in, in, in residence who are not threatened statistically. We know this from government data. They're not threatened by COVID. Uh, and we also right. know that the vaccine does not stop the spread. So there's no, there's no medical for an institution of higher learning. It's pretty pathetic. They're shoving this down uh, people's throats and there's no medical or scientific basis for it. You mean that wasn't provided on the U University's website? <laughs> Link through to the evidence? I would think that would be pretty easy, wouldn't it, for such a learned organization? Well, as it happens, I've printed off three examples of um, the, the university's got a link to a website called This Is Our Shot Canada, which I guess is a play, play on words. You, you get injected with the shot, but maybe it's the shot at, I don't know, public health or freedom from COVID to or something. get rid of COVID get rid of once our, yeah. and for all. Once and for all, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is our shot Canada. So looking at, which is implicitly endorsed by the University of Toronto because they prominently highlight it, like this is the place to go to for your mm-hmm. you know, Q&A on, on the vaccine. So from the uh, website, this is our shot Canada, uh, there's one component there, it's vaccine health and safety. So let me, let me read through... Uh, I just got. I got three examples. First one: Are COVID vaccines safe for children? Question mark. You open it up. Here's their answer: Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is approved by Health Canada for kids ages 12 and older. Oh, okay. So, are COVID vaccines safe for children? Answer: They've been approved by Health Canada. So, I guess what a blind obedience, yes or no. blind blind deference. Well, if Health Canada says okay, now maybe if we're all you know into the science, maybe there'd be some links there to the studies and reports and papers and peer reviewed research. But of course not. None of these government websites that I've seen they don't link to actual studies that support the assertions that the government is making. So here, are COVID vaccines safe for children? Answer, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is approved by Health Canada for kids ages 12 and, and older. That's it. There's no research. Well, there's no science. Yeah, it's good enough for you. I mean, if, you know, Health Canada approved it, I mean, uh, I mean, it's government. Government would never lie to us. They would never deceive us. They would never be self-interested. Now, let's, let's, let's read some other things. Uh, it says, the Moderna vaccine has been approved by Health Canada for uh, use in individuals 18 years of age and above. Okay, well, that doesn't really answer the question, are COVID vaccines safe for children? Their third bullet, studies are now underway. Oh, not yet completed. Studies are now underway to determine the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccinations in younger children. So that's the under 11s or the under 12s. Okay. Now here, finally, on their fourth point, uh, are COVID vaccines safe for children? Answer, it's extremely unlikely to get serious side effects that could cause long-term health problems from the COVID vaccines. Historically, vaccine monitoring shows us that side effects usually happen within six weeks of getting a vaccine dose. Well, historically, okay, but this is a different vaccine. Even the people that, oh, yeah. even the people that support that. it, it's, it's, it's mRNA. So even if historically... Uh, vaccine monitoring shows us that side effects usually happen within six weeks. That's historically for other vaccines, which are not M 
RNA. Now, once again, other than this bald assertion that it's extremely rare, or it's, no, it's extremely unlikely to get serious side effects that could cause long-term health problems, uh, there's no studies, there's no research, there's nothing. There's just the bald assertion, which we are expected to you know, naively trust uh, these politicians who never lie. Well, isn't the bald assertion based on previous vaccines? You know, isn't that what they're baldly asserting here? It's extremely unlikely based on previous vaccines. We can't say that about the current one because it hasn't been around long enough. Yeah. I mean, that should be apparent to everybody. So truthful yeah. answer, which you won't find on uh, This Is Our Shot Canada, but the truthful answer is start off by saying there is no long-term safety testing. So, and you know, there are so many examples of drugs, medications, treatments, vaccines, what have you, where it is not evident until five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road that, oh my, uh, this medication, you know, causes a huge, uh, hugely increased rate of uh, strokes or heart attacks or diabetes or this or that, right? And there's all kinds of products that have been pulled uh, after you know, 5, 10, 15 mm -hmm. years, it became clear, oh, this product is harmful. So why they're pushing this on kids, it's just evil as far as I'm concerned because the kids don't need it. They're not threatened by COVID. How do we know that? From government websites that the data is that, you know, COVID threatens children as much as lightning strikes threaten children. We know that. Yeah, but why isn't that in This Is Our Shot Canada? You know, I mean, like, you don't need this shot, Canada. Not this one anyway, because I mean, it's well, not, not children. Well, at I mean, least children don't. You know, if they were if they were pushing this for the the eighty five year olds in nursing homes that are already sick with cancer and emphysema and heart disease and diabetes and dementia, et cetera, and they're saying, look, you know, we got to inject all these eighty five year olds to protect them from COVID so that they can live for a few more months, uh, then you know that would be honest. But to to pretend, and then this university institution of higher learning. Uh, making this a requirement for people to live in residence. And I understand it's not total coercion. You could go to university. You don't have to live in residence. But the fact mm -hmm. that they're pushing this for here, – here are students over whom they have, you know, fairly tight control. If you're living in residence, you know, you're uh, – you have some rights, but you're pretty much – you're under the authority of the university. And so – theoretically. And so the universities are just capitalizing on this and they're, they're saying you got to be triple injected. Young people not threatened by COVID uh, are not allowed to make their own choice about weighing the, the risk of, of getting myocarditis. <laughs> it's just, you know. Yeah. And again, we get to that question about whether this is a government organization or not, right? It's, it's still sitting in that gray area and this has to be adjudicated because as you pointed out in cases previous that uh, had to do with charter rights and universities, some provinces consider them to be uh, government or quasi-government and others don't. So at this point, uh, I guess Ontario is one of those where the universities fall outside the charter. Is that it? Yes, the charter does not apply to universities in Ontario, but there are other remedies that are uh, possible, like human rights complaints. Let me go. Really? Let's go back to this okay. is this is our shot, Canada. So the, again, not the University of Toronto, but this is you know endorsed and relied upon by the University of Toronto. So this government this government website uh, or government funded website, this is our shot, Canada. Question: um, Does the COVID vaccine? impact fertility answer 
the vaccines have no impact on male fertility. It's like, okay, that's interesting. Maybe to date, there isn't the research yet. But how how do you know when you're ejecting 12-year-olds? Like, how do you know that 10 years from now when they're young men or 15 years, you know, if they're getting married or becoming fathers, how do you know that the injecting the uh, the 12 year old or the 15 year old with, with COVID vaccine is not going to impact fertility 10 years from now. But you get, again, you get right. no evidence, no evidence cited. You get the bald assertion. Let me repeat it. The vaccines have no impact on male fertility. In fact, men who get infected with COVID have a higher chance of problems with erectile dysfunction, producing less sperm or getting testicular infections. Uh, so yeah, there's a claim there that the COVID's going to impact your your uh, fertility, uh, but the vaccines have no impact on male fertility. I mean, except they're going to keep you from getting testicular infections mm-hmm. somehow. That's pretty big claim. Also, isn't there some data out now that we're looking at fertility drops across a national, a, you know, national statistics? I guess in Europe as well. Uh, there's there's some stats out now. Now I know correlation isn't causation, of course, but you know, there's some data out there now that there's been a big drop in places in Scandinavia, for instance. I'll see if I can find some of that data and link to it below in the uh, show notes. Well, it's it's the anecdotal information that is a trigger for scientific research. It's always been that way, right? People anecdotally, there's anecdotal observations that, you know, pregnant women taking thalidomide were giving birth to babies that were missing an arm or or both arms or missing a leg, missing limbs, uh, otherwise deformed. So you have this anecdotal thalidomide babies led to investigations and testing. And then it became clear that, oh, gee, uh, pregnant women taking thalidomide where it was it was harming the unborn child and you had all these babies being born without limbs and you know the company (laughs) the company was aware had become aware of this and continued to sell and promote the product even after it became aware and so later on there were lawsuits and and eventually uh the company was hammered in court and had to pay out huge sums of money to the uh thalidomide babies for knowingly selling a product uh, that wasn't, okay, it is, I think it was to reduce tiredness or reduce nausea. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, but here, you know, back to, this is our shot Canada. Here you have this bald-faced assertion, quote, there is no evidence that any vaccine, including the COVID-19 vaccine, affects fertility in either women or men. And it goes on with more bald-faced Oh, and suddenly threw women in there, did it? Oh, okay. No, that's uh, that's the first women. one. That's the first one at the top. There's no evidence that oh, any vaccine uh, affects fertility in either men, uh, women, or men. And then the fifth point: the vaccines have no impact on male fertility. So that's kind of re-emphasized. There's no data there. There's no links to anything. It's just a bald assertion. And now, d- does the third one, third and final one that I'll cover from this is our shot Canada. Uh, does the COVID vaccine impact the menstrual cycle? So answer provided states menstruation is a complex process and can be influenced by many things such as environmental changes, stress, sleep, and some medications. The lining of the uterus is in fact considered to be an active part of the immune system. 
When your immune system is working hard because you're vaccinated or sick, you may experience changes in how the endometrium reacts. In this way, it is possible the vaccine affects menstruation somehow. Oh, okay. Tepid acknowledgement, but yet compare that to... Fertility doesn't affect fertility though. Well, this is the idiocy of, of you know, the so-called science where on the one hand, they admit... Even here, you know, they have to admit that the uh, the COVID vaccine impacts menstruation, and uh, there's so many women that report after getting injected, they, they suddenly have a period that they were not expecting. Now, it's this weird, you know, uh, twilight zone, unscientific stretch to say, well, yeah, the vaccine affects menstruation, but it doesn't affect fertility. Like that's that's Maybe idiotic. It affects, it affects defertility. Look, I I have I've talked with women who have gone to see doctors about fertility issues, and the very first question that the doctor asks is, "Tell me about your menstruation cycle." That's the first question. So to, to pretend that that menstruation and fertility are not related to each other is just it's it's idiotic. But it is the world we live in now. Ah. Any changes, another assertion, another bald assertion, no data, of course, no links to any studies, reports, scientific, nothing, right? This is prop, which tells me it's propaganda because if you, if there was science to back this up, why don't you do what the justice center does and put in footnotes and put in links to your authorities as we do with all of our papers. We don't assert things in our papers without backing it up with an authority as to where that's coming from. Government websites don't do that. They're just full of bald assertions. Here's another assertion. So uh, this is our shot. Canada, does the vaccine impact the menstrual cycle? Quote, any changes you experience in your menstrual cycle after getting the vaccine are temporary. So it shouldn't be a reason not to get a shot. Okay, uh, what about all the women that say that they're no longer menstruating at all? What about those women? Oh, no, 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 we mustn't ask questions about that and don't talk about that. Well, maybe they're supposed to be the authority because that's why the university linked to them. Although, you know, you would expect a university to link to something a little more substantial because they have access to, you know, databases of research papers and things like that. So, well, That's great, John. Uh, we don't want to drag it out too long today. Uh, we're going to wrap up now. Thanks a lot for participating in episode 30 of Justice with John Carpe. I look forward to talking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin.